Good morning. This is All People's Church coming to you from Flagstaff, Arizona. Today's date is July the 3rd. We are in the midst of a Independence Day weekend. We're continuing with our verse-by-verse study of 2 Corinthians. We are currently going to finish up chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 30 through 33, and then we will read chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. Today's theme is found in chapter 11, verse 30, and in chapter 12, verse 5. Paul says, If I must boast, I will boast in things which concern my infirmities. What? What kind of boasting is that? How do you boast in your infirmities? The primary idea is from verse 19. We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. This is Paul's core idea concerning ministry. As an overseer, I want to measure everything I do by the same principle. The golden verses are are almost always superior for personal meditation, and this one especially so. It's just one verse. It is found in the 10th verse. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Notice, not when I'm riding high, not when I've been given awards, not when the applause of men is loud in my ears, not when I look and feel good and am strong. No, Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Today we will start with 2 Corinthians 11th chapter, 30th verse. Twyla? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenians when a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I did not know or whether out of the body I did not know, God knows such a one who who was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I did not know, God knows. How he was caught up in paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I shall be exalted above measure by abundance of the revelations, a throne in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I will be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I plead with the Lord three times that I might depart from me. 
And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I, then I am strong. I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended by you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly the signs of apostles were accomplished among you with all perseverance, in signs of wonders and mighty deeds. For what is in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for do not for I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for their parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. So the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. But be that is it, but be that it, as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent you our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things beloved for our edification. For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whispering, conceits, tumults. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanliness, fortification, and lewdness which they have practiced. Amen. May God add his great blessings to the reading of his word. Yeah. Now let's go back up to verse 30, Denise. Would you begin reading there? And I would like for you to read just the 30th verse. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. I have had it with the foolishness of recounting the exploits and the sufferings of my ministry to the Gentiles. I think that's what Paul is saying. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. As I mentioned last week, Paul completely changes his tone here at the end of this chapter, and, it, and what he's saying in the 30th verse continues on into the next chapter. He says, if I'm going to boast, it is going to be about my infirmities, my weaknesses, my frailties. I am going to tell you about the times I despaired for life, the time I was not brave, the times I hung on by my fingernails and God brought me through. That, I believe that's what Paul is really saying. I know these other guys come in and waltz into Corinth and they start telling about all their great exploits and boasting about this and that. And he says, I've had it with that. He says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about my frailties. Verse 31. 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Okay, Paul is going to say several times in this chapter, he's going to use words that we might not be our way of saying it, but he's basically saying to the Corinthians, I am not lying to you. We might say, if it was us that was giving this talk to the Corinthians, we might say, with my hand upon the Bible, I swear that what I'm about to tell you is the truth and nothing but the truth. Let's hear what he's got to say. Denise, start with verse 32. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. You say, well, Paul, that sounds pretty exciting. But I think what Paul is really saying here is that he's not really proud of this episode. Whatever happened there, I think he's likely saying, I feared and fled for my life. He might be saying, I really was not so brave in this circumstance. When I couldn't help myself, though, God provided. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Again, this continues in the same vein of thought that I mentioned at the beginning. Others who followed Paul may have boasted about visions and revelations to bolster their claims of authority. To counteract this, though, Paul calls it unprofitable. He begins here to recount the visions of one he does not name, but he seems to have had firsthand knowledge of what this, this person's experience. Verses 2 through 5. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was called up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, Yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. Let's go back now and think about what Paul is saying. It's a little bit unusual the way Paul is talking here. And I think it's because Paul is wanting to recount this event, but he has, he's having a hard time uh, disguising it, I think. Because of the wording in verse 7 and the specific details, it is generally assumed that Paul is actually speaking about himself. Also, since he had several near-death experiences, you might want to note these, uh, this scripture down if you're interested. He was left for dead in Acts 14, 19 through 20. So based on the fact that he's had several near-death experiences, it has been my opinion that the things he recounts in this verses two, two through five could have been his own experiences. You may ask, why wouldn't he just come out and say it? Say it's, it was him. It could be that he is so uncomfortable with boasting, he is trying to find a more preferable way, but still talk about heavenly things and things that he wanted to tell the Corinthian church about, but he didn't want to let it be seen as him boasting. Verse 6. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, 
But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Yeah, see, that's that's the <coughs> that's really the point I think he's making. It's not, I, he says, though I might desire to boast, I'm not going to. And he says the other thing is, if I do boast, then there's a chance you're going to start thinking more of me than you ought to. Let's talk about that for just a minute because that is a huge statement. Denise and I were talking earlier it might have been this morning or last night. It was probably this morning. But the fact that God's kingdom is sort of a bizarre, upside-down kingdom compared to the earth, our earthly existence. What do I mean by that? The way we think as humans, our natural way of thinking, is totally, almost always opposite to the way things are done in heaven or the way that God thinks. And this is one of those huge statements that Paul is making where he says, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Let's unpack that. If we as ministers and witnesses, that's us, all of us, Denise and I are current ministers, but all of us are witnesses. If we as ministers and witnesses can stick with the word of God and minimize personal success stories, we are better off. Why? It is human nature to want to tell of our triumphs and minimize or completely leave out the tales of our despicable weaknesses and our dismal failures. Is that not true? It's human nature, right? We want to tell how good we are, how we succeeded, how we were the hero of the situation. Paul is saying, listen, we should not give the impression to someone else that only people of superior willpower or intellect or above average looks or physical presence or lots of personal charisma can succeed as Christians. That is simply not true. And we should not give that impression. Verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. This is another one of those scriptures that is really important to think about thoroughly before drawing any conclusions. This is a hard truth, but it shows that God will go to great lengths to keep us tethered to him. Why? Because he gave Paul a thorn in the flesh. Paul never tells us what the thorn in the flesh is. Because of the fact that we know Paul's eyesight failed as he got older, many think that he may have been going blind or at least he was not able to read or write possibly at this part of his life. But we don't really know what the thorn in the flesh was. But it does show that it would be love to afflict a saint with a physical issue if that's what it took to keep them from being exalted above measure. In this case, if, it, if they were so self-important that it could cause them to fall. So self-important that they began to think that they could not make a mistake. So self-important that they began to put themselves in the place of Jesus Christ. Start taking the glory of God upon them. So, however it came about that Paul's thorn in the flesh arrived, Paul prayed about it. He, let me say it the way he said it. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. In this particular case, Paul prayed about it. He says in verse 8, he says, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times, 
that it might depart from me. But the answer was, verse 9, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So the thing that I want to get back to here is verse 7. The fact that Paul prayed about this. The fact that he received a, a real word from the Lord. I believe that the words that Paul heard, My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's like one sentence. I believe those are the exact words Paul heard from God. As best as Paul could remember, I believe that's exactly what he heard in his prayer time. This is very much God's way, by the way, from what I know of God. He does not waste words. If he can tell you in one sentence what you need to know, he is not going to speak to you in a paragraph. He gets straight to the point. Now, having said that, unless you have inquired of God and he has told you that there is a reason for a disease or other physical malady you suffer, you keep praying for your healing and do all that you can to help yourself according to common sense. I repeat, don't give up praying for yourself till you get an answer that you are certain that is from God. So if you've got an ailment, pray. You keep praying about it. If you happen to be, as it seemed to be the case for Paul, that this thing was allowed by God, and I want to emphasize allowed by God, Satan cannot do anything to you except God allows it. But if God allows something that's unpleasant, even a physical issue, to keep you close to him, I'll put it like that, then you know that God is doing it for your good. But until you know that, you keep praying and believe God for your healing or whatever the issue is. Read verse 9 again. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The other thing that I wanted to point out about that verse is, is a question. Based on what you read there, what you heard Paul say there, can we boast in our infirmities, or is it always about our successes? The next question is this. What is our first priority? Is it earthly promotion, or do we seek that the power of Christ might rest upon us? That's what Paul said. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ might rest upon me. What is, what's your motivation as a disciple? What is your motivation as a minister? Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to suffer infirmities if the glory of God, if the power of God would rest upon you? Verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the golden verse. If I could encourage all who would be disciples, it's very important not only to read the word, but to also meditate upon it. This is a verse that is given to meditation. You know, we all want to grow in the Lord. We all want to develop spiritually. We all want to be more useful to him. One of the ways that you can do that is by developing your spiritual man. Uh, several ways to do that. Of course, reading the Word is one, and this is going to be related to reading the Word. Another is prayer, of course. 
But this one is that I'm talking about is meditation. There's nothing wrong with writing a scripture and placing it on the visor of your car. A memory verse or a verse for meditation on your coffee pot, on your bedside table, you know, you get the idea. I've heard a lot of people that put scriptures on their mirror. That's fine. But the main thing is you need to be getting God's word into you. It's one thing to read it, and that's good, but it's a whole different ball game when you meditate upon it. And you pray about a verse, and you say, Lord, can you speak to me through this verse? Lord, what are you saying in this verse? And you start asking yourself, Lord, how does this apply to me? And then see what the Holy Spirit might say to you. Verse 11, please. I have become a fool in boasting. You have, you have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Okay. <laughs> oh, how many times has a, a parent toiled without appreciation? We can feel the anguish of this true servant of God, toiling not only without appreciation, but even without the support of those for whom he has given his life strength. He says, For I ought to have been commended by you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. He says, When all of this stuff came up in the church, it would have been so good if, someone, if just one of you guys had said, Hey, wait a minute. Let me talk to you for a few minutes about Paul. The one that you guys are downgrading. The one that you are calling his authority into question. Let me talk about Paul to you for just a minute. But he said that that never really happened. Verses 12, 13, and 14. Truly the sons of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now, for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance, Signs, wonders, mighty deeds. He says, you weren't inferior to any of the other churches. He says, except in one thing. He says, I didn't ask you guys for anything. I didn't ask you to, to support me. I didn't ask you for, for anything. Until this day, he says, I'm still not interested in your money or your stuff. He says, I'm, I'm not asking you to lay up for me as a parent of this church. He says, I want to give to you. Verse 15. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. This is the lament of most selfless servants of God, most selfless parents, and most selfless public servants. And might I say possibly even the creator of the universe. God has spent himself and emptied the treasure of heaven to provide for mankind. Men and women, for the most part, shake their fist in the face of God today, right? All you got to do is turn on the TV and you'll see it. Don't you know he loves his saints who worship and adore him, those who seek him in prayer, those who desire him more 
than life himself. It's such a different atmosphere when we are appreciative of those that serve us, those that are in authority over us, those that spend the time and effort, who suffer in order to be God's servant to us. When we appreciate them, it changes the atmosphere. And in the same way, whenever we come to God with that same type of, of appreciation, don't you think he really enjoys the fact that he says, you know, somebody really appreciates what I'm doing for them. So always, we as mature disciples of Christ, we always ought to be thankful for those that help us, those that provide for us, and then we also should have the same attitude toward God himself. Verse 16. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. That's sort of an unusual scripture. It's a little bit hard to understand. But I think what he's saying there is, even though I didn't take advantage of you as those who have come behind me, I was still able to present the gospel in a way that compelled you to repentance. Verses 17 and 18. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Titus was a true disciple of Paul. Obviously, Titus conducted himself, handled problems, and taught the same doctrines as Paul did. I've struggled. Okay, now this is just for fun. This is not really part of the lesson today, but it's really just talking about the scriptures here. Do you see that he says, I urged Titus and sent our brother with him? Do you see that he didn't name? You know, this is like one of the few times in all of the epistles that Paul wrote that he doesn't use the name of the person that he's talking about. I've struggled to decipher the one he regularly calls our brother. My only thought is that he must be talking about Apollos. Now, this is a personal opinion. Personal opinion. I base this on Acts 19.1. If you want to jot that down, you'll see that Apollos is mentioned in that verse. There must have been some level of conflict, some lack of coordination, as in 1 Corinthians 16.12. We've already seen that. If you want to go back to that or take that scripture down. Or possibly some other disagreements with Paul that causes him to be reluctant to mention his name. Apollos, though an acknowledged teacher never attain the stature of others in the New Testament. I often wonder if his issue is one that so often afflicts many present-day ministers, and that is submission to authority. If so, it might account for Paul's reservations. He considered him a great teacher for sure, but maybe not a great leader. And for that reason, Paul was, I think, reluctant to mention him. And if it wasn't Apollos, I think it was, again, someone that all of these comments would apply to. Because Paul had a good memory for names. And at the end of many epistles, he, in fact, says, greet. And he calls out names of all kinds of people in that local church. So I know that Paul is not mentioning this person's name. I believe he's not mentioning this person's name on purpose. If you want to look more into the ministry of Apollos, you might want to jot down these scriptures. Acts 18, verses 24 through 28, verses 19, 1 of Acts, like I have already mentioned. 1 Corinthians 16, 12, 
And then he's mentioned a few more times in 1 Corinthians, verse 19. Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. Let me go back and make one more point about <coughs> verse 18. This is an example of a verse that when you first read it, it's just a, it's, you can read it and it doesn't mean anything to you because you really have to think about, about this and see if there's anything that could be learned from it. But now that I've told you that Paul possibly is not mentioning this person's name on purpose, you might say, well, Jerry, why, why did you spend some time on that? It's because of the fact that as disciples, we have to learn to obey authority. The highest person in any organization, and in our organization, we are part of a fellowship, and the person that's in charge of this group of ministers that we're, we are a part of, his name is Brother Gordon. Well, if Brother Gordon calls me or leaves a, a voicemail for me or a text, I have a responsibility to get back to him. And not tomorrow or next week. He's my authority. The first thing is I need to be subject to his authority. I need to say, Brother Gordon, you left a text and asked me to call you. What's up, sir? What can I do? What's on your mind? And then be willing to take as long if he says, look, I want to talk to you about X, Y, Z, whatever it might be, then it's my responsibility being subject to him to say, okay, I'm yours for as long as it takes, right? I need to have the right attitude toward authority. Brother Gordon's responsibility, his authority, there's no one above him in our organization. But who is he subject to? He's subject to Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the head of the church. So Brother Gordon has a responsibility to every day. He needs to humble himself. I'm not telling Brother Gordon what to do. I'm just talking about whoever the leader is, the ultimate leader in any organization. He has a responsibility to humble himself before Jesus Christ and say, Lord, what would you have me do? Lord, what would you have me say to the churches? What would you have me to say to this particular minister? That's what I'm getting at. It's not enough for Apollos to be a great teacher. He also needs to be submitted to authority, some type of authority. In this particular case, I believe Paul felt like Apollos was a good teacher. He was saint of God. He had many great things to say. Some people believe that Apollos wrote the book of Hebrews. Whether you do or don't, it doesn't matter except the fact that that's how highly he's regarded. It doesn't change the fact that Paul, I think, felt like, I can't ask Apollos to do certain things. He'll resist me. If he if he's, feels like he's got other things to do, he's not going to submit to help when I need some help. Titus, on the other hand, if I can just use Titus as an example, Paul says, I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? And see, Paul has such great confidence in Titus. And he says, look, I didn't take advantage of you guys by any means. Even when I sent Titus, 
I knew the spirit of Titus. I knew the way Titus was going to conduct himself. And he says, I'm, I'm sure he would say, did Titus ask you guys for anything? And I'm sure the answer was no. Titus didn't ask us for anything. All Titus did when he got here was act just like Paul did in the past. He started to minister. He started to put things in order. He started to explain the way the church ought to be operated and the way it ought to conduct itself. Let's continue now with verse 19. Would you read it again, Denise? I know you've read it once. Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we, do, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. Now, before I get into this, we've got two verses left. I have just a few comments and then a conclusion. So if you're beginning to tire, hang in there with me. We're almost done. We will complete this chapter today. I would like to highlight in verse 19, he says, we speak before God in Christ. You know, I told you earlier that he, he doesn't use the words, I swear, I swear by God or I swear by the Bible. But these are words that mean the same thing to him, I believe. He says, we speak before God in Christ. I believe that's another way of him saying, I swear before God that we do all things for your edification. He says, we speak before God in Christ, but we do all things beloved for your edification. This is important. When Paul says, we do everything for your edification, this is always the differentiator between the hireling and the true servant of Christ. Hear me now. That's the truth. The true servant of Christ, he thinks about edification of the saints. It includes equipping for ministry. It is the sign qua non, the most important and defining attribute of the true shepherd of the flock. If you are a true leader of Christ, your goal is not going to be to elevate yourself. See, Paul has had a hard time during all of this, these last few chapters of 2 Corinthians. He says, look, I am sick and tired of this boasting, what these guys are saying. And I have to sort of boast back to tell you that, look, Whatever they're saying that I am just, I've done as much or more than any of them, and they do not have the authority to question my authority, I think is what Paul is telling the Corinthians in this, this uh, second epistle. The thing about a true disciple and a true leader in God's kingdom is that he is not trying to build his own kingdom. Like I said earlier, he's not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. So as a minister of Christ, what is your primary job? It's to edify the saints. One of the most important things that you can do as a minister, as a Bible teacher, as a, just a witness for Christ, is that you teach others how to understand the Word of God. You teach them how to ferret out the truths of the Scriptures, and even if they are inconvenient... And I'm going to preach a sermon one day called The Inconvenient Truths of the Bible because there are plenty that are inconvenient. There's plenty of truths that you can teach from this word that, like I said earlier, it's like the whole world is turned upside down when you consider the teachings of the Scriptures. They are not the way the world thinks. One of the things that can happen to us, and Denise and I watch a little bit of TV 
Not much, okay? And I'm, most of what we watch is from the 50s, I think. The 50s or the early 60s. But even that stuff, it can start to skew your thinking because the people on TV, they've got to have a story. Whether it's a murder mystery story or whether it's a comedy, they have to have a story. And because of that, people in those sitcoms and in those other shows, they act in certain ways so that they can entertain us or we can see the way people act. It can begin to cause your thinking to be skewed because what you see them do on TV is not Christ-like. Every TV show, whether it's a sitcom or whether it's a, a murder or some kind of action thriller movie, Almost in every case, when I start to analyze what they're showing and purveying on that, as soon as I start saying, well, if this one acted Christ-like, or if that one responded in a Christ-like way, their show is just completely kaput. All of a sudden, there's no drama left in their show. And, and so the thing that I'm getting at is the thing that we want to do is to edify the church. So you can teach the Word well, when you teach the Word, you're giving tools to the members of the church. See, if, if, if I wanted to maintain all of the prestige and power that I could as a minister, I wouldn't teach people how to be ministers themselves. But I want you to be ministers. I want you to understand the Word. I want you to know how to study the Word. I want you to know how to pray. No matter what the circumstance is, I want you to be fully equipped. I'm talking, I'm talking to everyone, everyone that listens by means of this podcast, not just all people's church, but I mean wherever you are, if you go to church with Denise and I long enough, our goal is going to be to edify you. We're going to, we're going to build you up as a Christian. We're never going to tear you down. We're always going to tell you that you can do it, because you can. You can understand the scriptures. You can start with the gospels. Jesus taught a very simple gospel. Start there. If you feel like I'm not able to, to understand all that Paul said, especially Romans, right? It's pretty hard. Then go back to the gospels. But begin to read. Begin to read the word. Begin to, to meditate upon it. You can understand the scriptures, and Denise and I will teach you how to go deeper in the Word each Sunday. The other thing is prayer. You don't ever have to feel like, if only I could get in touch with some super faith-filled minister on the TV or on the radio or on the Internet, because you can learn to pray. The goal of the true minister of God and, and I say minister, but I mean at all levels, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, whether you're a Bible study teacher, whether you are a witness to others, no matter what level of ministry you're at, the point is the goal of the minister, God's ministers, is to edify. Verse 20. For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. He says, I will find you as immature babes in Christ. He says, I fear. 
lest when I come, I shall find you as babes in Christ, carnal and fleshly, argumentative, caring more about your pleasures and your public image than the things of Christ. Verse 21. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. Here's a question for you. Paul says, Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, And my question is, what does Paul mean when he says, God will humble me among you? To me, it means he will require of Paul intercession and mourning, repentance and lamentations, the idea of sitting in ashes, clothed in sackcloth from the Old Testament. Paul is saying, when I get there and I find out that you're babes in Christ and that you have not repented of, what does he say, uncleanness, fornication, lewdness, and all these other things that they've practiced. He says, God's going to cause me to be humbled. I'm going to have to humble myself and pray for you. I'll be mourning in prayer for those who have not repented of their sin. Isn't that what he says? I'll be mourning in prayer. He uses that very word. He says mourning, right? I shall mourn for many who have sinned. Guys, there's a lot of stuff in our society and inside the church that indicates that you can live any way you want, do anything you want, and it's all covered by grace. The truth in that is that all of our sins are covered by grace. Everything we've done in the past, everything that we might do today, and everything in the future that we might do is covered by grace. God only sacrificed Jesus one time. He said, if you will accept my gift, then you will be saved, eternally saved. But God has no intention that we would take that as a license to steal. And there's many that have said about Paul back in the first century, they said Paul is really teaching that you can live any way you want. But here is living proof in black and white that Paul did not preach that. He would not have said, I'm going to be repenting, I'm going to be mourning, For those of you who have not repented, if that was the way he expected people to live. This is another scripture. If you want to just remember this verse, if you don't remember any of the other verses that concern this idea, remember verse 21. This is another scripture which shows powerful proof, powerful proof that neither Paul nor any of the apostles ever preached grace to sin. What did they preach? They preach that if you sin, repent of it. That's the thing that Denise and I practice and that we teach. We're saved. We're eternally saved. But you know, if I were to offend a brother, if I knew that I did something that offended my brother, if I really loved him, I would go to him and I would say, listen, I'm sorry that I hurt you. Let's say that I said something about him that wasn't true. I say, listen, I said this, but I was wrong. I didn't have the whole story. I want you to know I'm sorry for saying that about you. And if you'll, if you'll go with me, I'm going to go to these people that I said that to. And in your presence, I'm going to tell them that I was wrong. What would I be showing to him? I would be showing, number one, that I love him. And number two, that I respect him. And number three, that I honor him. That is the exact way we ought to treat God. God doesn't hold a hammer over our head 
and say, I'm ready to strike you if you make a mistake. But he is our father. If I could ever convey anything to you, and I know that some of us have earthly fathers that were hard to respect and that were, were tyrants or, or worse. And so this is maybe hard for some people in the audience to comprehend. But if you had a good father that loved you, or if you had someone else in your life that you could think of in that way, someone that truly loved you, if you knew that what you did upset them, wouldn't you want to apologize? Wouldn't you want to make it right with them? You know, our Father's the same way. Our Heavenly Father's the same way. He wants to have a relationship with us. You know, if we've done something that we know, that we know would offend Him, we ought not let it keep us from coming into His presence. What it ought to do is make us instead say, Lord, I am in your presence, and I want to get something right with you. I did this or I did that, and I know it was wrong. I know it's not in accordance with your scriptures in any way, and I know that the Holy Spirit has spoken to me about it, and I'm, I want to get it right with you. So just remember verse 21. You can go back to it any time that you have any question about what is God's attitude toward us and sinning once we're saved, because we do sin. So, so now you know. What does Paul say? Repent of it. Just repent of it. That's, that's all you need to do. In conclusion, the promotion for the disciple of Christ is quite opposite to our normal way of thinking. This is important. The world says self-promote. That's the way they said it in the Navy. It's like you have to blow your own horn. And the world believes even put on an act to convince others that you're a great leader, have superior intellect and judgment, or superior charisma. That's the way the, the world operates. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. Instead, let's remember this. The very best of heaven, the very image of the Father, came to earth and modeled a life of meekness and lowliness. Did I tell you that today we were going to turn things upside down? We as humans, we want to be powerful and strong. We want to be king or queen. That's the way we are as humans. And sometimes we might not say it, but our selfish ways tell the story better than we could say it. But if you will go to Matthew, the 11th chapter, 29th verse, and if you'll go to Matthew 21, 5, note those scriptures and read them this afternoon when you get time. They're going to be talking about Jesus. He intentionally avoided those who would have made him an earthly king. That's found in John 6, 15. At times, he purposely left the thronging crowds and went to the wilderness for the obscurity and the, the time of being alone that that provided. Let us be Christ-like and not worldly-like. If we would be like Christ, we will learn servanthood, selflessness, and obedience to the Father. His will will become our will. When we are weak, here we go again, this is the golden verse. When we are weak in ourselves for Christ's sake, 
then we can become strong for God. Amen. Amen. This message has been brought to you by All People's Church of Arizona. We are a virtual church headquartered in Flagstaff. If you have found this audio message to be useful and you would like to join us for our Sunday service, please find the Zoom link on our website at apcofaz.org. Our service starts at 10 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. If you would like to know more about eternal life through Jesus, continue to listen for more information. The first and most important step to eternal life through Jesus is to accept Him as your Lord and Savior. It is an act of the will. The basics of salvation or reconciliation with God the Father can be summarized in three statements. First, you must understand that we are all spiritually dead, that is, separated from God, and cannot be reconciled to Him on our own. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all sinned and have no means to atone for our sins. We have no remedy. Second, you must believe in your heart that Jesus is the one sent by God. The Bible says in John 20.31, But these are written, speaking of the signs that Jesus did during his earthly ministry, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The sacrifice of his Son was God's plan for salvation for all humanity. Our only part in this plan is whether or not we will believe it and accept it. Third, confess with your mouth. In Romans 10, 9, and 10, it is written that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Essentially, this is very simple. It means you must pronounce your faith to God in prayer. There is no right prayer. Prayer is conversation. So say to God what is really in your heart. Many sample prayers include affirmative statements concerning the three points above, such as this one. Father in heaven, I have sinned against you. I have hurt other people and I've hurt myself. I believe you sent Jesus to die for my sins. I accept your gift of salvation. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Help me to love and live as a follower of Jesus should. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Finally, go to church on Sunday to strengthen your faith. Accepting Christ Jesus as your Savior is the first step, but the journey of faith is a long one. There is much to learn and you will need friends to help. We would love for you to attend All People's Church and become part of our fellowship. As noted above, it is as easy as clicking on the Zoom link found at apcofaz.org. Contact me by Facebook Messenger or by email at apcofarizona at protonmail.com for more information or to talk about faith in Jesus Christ. My prayers are with you, and I hope to hear from you. This concludes our message for today.